It's been more than four decades since singer-songwriter J.J. Cale wrote those famous words. And cocaine's honesty is now in question. Drug dealers are changing the way they package cocaine. Now it's laced with fentanyl. Drug dealers have gone from pills to heroin and now cocaine with a deadly form of fentanyl. To be blunt, what you might buy and use, thinking it's a good time, could cost you your life. But sensational news headlines aside, how much do we really know about how, why, or even how much fentanyl is making its way into the cocaine supply? The answer is not much. I'm Christopher Moraff, reporting for Narcotica. You're listening to Narcotica, a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the people who use them. For more than 150 years, America has had a love-hate relationship with a stimulating little alkaloid ester first isolated in 1859 from the leaves of an unassuming shrub that had been used by indigenous people for thousands of years to stave off fatigue and increase stamina. Revered by the likes of Thomas Edison, Ulysses S. Grant, and reportedly even President William McKinley, it was used for decades to treat everything from hemorrhoids to morphine dependency. And by the turn of the Great Depression, folk musicians across the South were singing its praises. If you don't believe cocaine is good, there's Alma Rose and Julia Wood. Hey, hey, gonna take away from me. I'm simply wild about my good cocaine. I'm simply wild about my good cocaine. But even before the Harrison Act in 1914 outlawed the drug, Americans weren't so wild about cocaine anymore. Racist myths about fiendish black men hopped up on the popular soft drink Coca-Cola, which contained a small amount of cocaine in its formula, had prompted the Georgia-based company to remove the drug from its recipe in 1903. And by 1927, when Dick Justice recorded that cover of Luke Jordan's song, Cocaine Blues, that you just heard, it served more as a eulogy than a celebration of the stimulant. Thanks to a burgeoning pharmaceutical industry, by the 1950s, amphetamines had all but replaced cocaine as the stimulant of choice for war-weary Americans. In 1953, according to federal data, total U.S. seizures of the drug amounted to just 13 ounces. Then came the 70s. But it wasn't disco music or clubs like Studio 54 that were responsible for cocaine's astounding comeback during the decade. The brutal drug war that was about to unfold in Latin America was not so much a crusade against a substance, but a proxy fight against an ideology. The shooting on this day the communists won was not in a battle, but a celebration. Saigon had already surrendered. By the time the last American troops pulled out of Vietnam, the communist menace had entrenched itself much closer to the homeland. 
Every country in Latin America was in upheaval as left and right wing groups battled it out for dominance. As Paul Gutenberg, a professor at Stony Brook University who specializes in the evolution of cocaine markets, points out, cocaine's revival during the coming decade was in large part a sideshow to the Red Scare in Latin America, which began in earnest with the U.S.-backed overthrow of the socialist president of Chile in 1973. The shifting geography or opportunities for drugs were part of the political map of the Cold War in Latin America, tensions and pressures that were also exported by the United States. Cocaine, which could fetch a hundred times as much on the U.S. market as its value in Latin America, played such a large role in financing these conflicts that by 1980, a military junta comprised of narco-traffickers and former SS functionaries, most famously Klaus Barbie, had managed to take over control of the Bolivian government in what became known as the Cocaine Coup. Meanwhile, high purity blow was flooding cities like Miami, Los Angeles, and New York by the ton, and amateur chemists were on the cusp of an innovation that would radically transform public perception of cocaine and let loose the dogs of war on an entire generation of young, mostly black, American men. Steve Young reports on a new kind of cocaine called crack. It's going nationwide, especially among the young, a drug so pure and so strong it might just as well be called crack of doom. Crack cocaine descended with such force on America's cities that some of the same marginalized, mostly African-American communities that now protest against overly aggressive policing tactics, like stop and frisk, were practically begging law enforcement to come in and crack down on their neighborhoods. The result would be a bipartisan push for the harshest federal drug laws in history. Yet despite those efforts, cocaine prices plunged, purity surged, and racial politics would turn cocaine into public enemy number one for the second time in a century. Studies show that drug use is down among America's white middle class. The problem, of course, is with the America that is neither white nor middle class. For nearly 20 years, the war on drugs became synonymous with the war on crack and helped put mass in mass incarceration. From 1990 to 2000, just over a decade, America's inmate population surged nearly 300%. Then, after peaking around 2006, cocaine suddenly wasn't king anymore. According to the National Survey on Drug Use and Health, between 2006 and 2013, the number of people who admitted using cocaine over the previous year declined by 44%. Colombian geopolitics played a role, as did a massive coca eradication campaign sponsored by the U.S., known as Plan Colombia, that cost U.S. taxpayers nearly $10 billion. But it would take a few more years before America learned that its drug problem wasn't abating. It was quietly morphing, and about to grow bigger and deadlier than ever. Police are calling prescription drugs the new crack on the streets, and agents, city leaders, and commissioners of Tampa are cracking down on the clinics that are selling them. 
They have popped up like mushrooms all across South Florida, hundreds of them. Pain clinics where addictive prescription narcotics like OxyContin are handed out with little or no oversight. For a time, the war on prescription opioids and the overdose crisis that followed pushed cocaine out of the spotlight as deaths from illicit fentanyl, either sold as heroin or cut with the drug, surged to record levels. But in early 2017, researchers began noticing a potentially troubling new trend. And journalists, myself included, began getting tips that people were beginning to die of fentanyl-related overdoses who did not use opioids after consuming powder or crack cocaine. As you heard earlier in this report, local news reporters were quick to point blame for the problem on drug dealers who were spiking their coke with a powerful opioid that would produce the exact opposite effect that somebody was looking for. It's not hard to see the fundamental flaw in that logic. Using fentanyl as a cutting agent for a stimulant like cocaine simply makes no sense. Henry Ford once said, a market is never saturated with a good product, but is very quickly saturated with a bad one. In other words, quality is king. By one metric, it costs five times as much to attract a new customer than it does to keep an existing one. And perhaps nowhere is that more true than in the market for illicit drugs, where advertising is non-existent, prices are fixed, and one bad review could shut a corner down for days or more. But it wasn't just a lack of motive that made me skeptical. There was a lack of evidence, too. And even some of the most reputable news outlets were beginning to make conclusions based on evidence that was wobbly at best and sometimes just plain non-existent. Take this story from earlier this year produced by WBUR in Boston. The only sign of drug use found near Chris Bennett's body was a pipe. But it looked like the 32-year-old from southeastern Massachusetts had stopped breathing and died of an opioid overdose. Chris Bennett's mother, Lisa, couldn't understand what happened. Then she saw the toxicology report. He was smoking cocaine that was laced. That's what he had in his system was cocaine and fentanyl. But what's missing from that report, and instead buried in the digital online version of the story, is that Bennett had formerly been a heroin user. He claimed to be 10 years clean, notwithstanding his crack cocaine use. Or at least that's what he told his mother. It seemed to me it was quite a leap to make a claim that drug dealers were intentionally lacing their cocaine with fentanyl based solely on the fact that both drugs were present in the system at the time of death. And I wasn't the only one that had a problem with that methodology. Uh, my name is Kevin Shanks. I am a uh, forensic toxicologist in a uh, private forensic toxicology laboratory. Um, and my duties include um, uh, kind of tracking and trending of the novel emerging psychoactive substances, um, as well as analyses and testing in postmortem toxicology. So we spoke briefly over Twitter back in January on the spike in headlines about fentanyl-laced cocaine. Many of these stories cited fatality data, and when I asked you about that, you said, and I quote, any toxicologist making the claim based on tox alone should be questioned directly about it and chastised. Why did you say that? 
using the toxicology results, specifically the post-mortem toxicology results, isn't um, that great of a tool um, because you don't know, you can't tell from the toxicology results alone if that's, I mean, when those substances were ingested, if they were ingested as two different products or two different administrations, it's, it's the, um, the reporting of such by, I mean, certain agencies that probably should know a little bit better of, I mean, that's their wheelhouse. That's their, that's their knowledge base. They should know that you shouldn't really be using the, say, toxicology data, for example, to wholly interpret that these drugs are being used together um, or in the, within this, from, the, from within the same product. But that didn't stop the media from reporting on it, or coroner's offices from going along with the narrative. Still, something was definitely going on. Cocaine deaths were rising rapidly, and in most cases, the victims had fentanyl in their system or one of its analogs as well. Meanwhile, I had begun testing my own samples of retail-level cocaine, and it was coming up positive for fentanyl two to three out of every ten times. But there's a caveat to that, and it might just help explain not only why fentanyl is turning up in samples of cocaine, but demonstrate the power of narratives to trump even common sense, so long as they're sensational enough. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Cocaine music. Yeah, little bit of pee, little bit of chic, little bit of kiss. Take it out the pot, let them mix. Get it ready for the fix. Bag it up and serve it to the world. You know, I'm not, I've only been in Ohio like 16 years. I speak Ohio in with an accent. That's Dennis Kushan, who spent three decades as an investigative reporter for USA Today before taking a buyout and turning his attention to harm reduction in his home state of Ohio. If there's a ground zero of the fentanyl crisis, Ohio is it. When fentanyl started showing up on the radar in 2013, the state saw 83 deaths. By the end of the next year, that had shot to 504, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. I've always had a national perspective. I've never really done anything on Ohio. But I had to say that, um, if I were being honest with myself, Ohio is where I should dedicate my attention because we're in this middle of this mass slaughter. I don't even call it, it's just, it's unbelievable the amount of death here. So where could I add value? And that would be trying to save lives Uh in Ohio with accurate information. Kushan had also been hearing what were then unsubstantiated reports of deaths from cocaine that was contaminated with fentanyl. Um, I sort of didn't really know what was going on. I knew to be skeptical of all the claims, so I did what I always do. I started reporting, and I looked at the data, and cocaine deaths were soaring, and heroin deaths were declining, and like cocaine, fentanyl deaths were soaring, and cocaine, fentanyl deaths without heroin. So I started realizing that um, it's not a heroin epidemic. It's a drug overdose epidemic. So I think that there's a very small group of us that are interested in this, um, mostly because we all know that unlike the mass media would like us to believe that it's very unlikely that drug dealers are doing this like on a mass scale intentionally, right? I mean, I think anyone that has spent any time covering this issue finds that theory a little bit like wonky, right? What the data show is that illegal drug markets are way more dynamic than legal markets. 
they changed quickly and inexplicably and not just from city to city, like from Philadelphia to Columbus, but from Columbus to Cleveland. I also think that um, there's an information problem when things change hands multiple times. That third person doesn't know anything. You wound up getting seizure data, right? Now, so you're, you're actually looking at, at, at street-level seizures um, that, are, that are sort of, that whenever there's an arrest and drugs are seized, either from a seller or a buyer, this goes into this database, right. right? With the help of Ohio's three main crime labs, Kushan managed to assemble a database of 106,000 drug samples covering four years. What he discovered is that it isn't cocaine contaminated with fentanyl that is so much the problem as a specific type of fentanyl. Carfentanyl kills in phenomenal numbers. When it comes in, when it came into Ohio, it, it didn't come in slowly. It was like not here one day, and then a month later, it was all over the place, and it stayed all over the place. In fact, this drug seizure data, to me, essentially shows that um, Ohio had a one-year incredible spike in overdose deaths from July 2016 to July 2017, and I believe it was almost entirely a function of carfentanil. For reasons that aren't entirely clear, carfentanil is hyper-local in its distribution. In 2016, 343 of 400 exhibits seized by law enforcement came out of Ohio. Florida's been hard hit as well, but the first carfentanil seizure didn't turn up in New York until 2018. And a year before, Pennsylvania had just 45 seizures across the entire state. Could this explain why, even though I had personally confirmed the presence of fentanyl in Philadelphia's cocaine supply, no one seemed to be dying from it? As academics, reporters, and public health experts stumbled over each other to figure out what was going on, I hit the streets of Kensington, Philadelphia, where I had been reporting almost exclusively on fentanyl-laced heroin, with a new series of questions and a new mystery to solve. So what do you think? How, what, what do you feel like after you do that? The coke is excellent. It's actually really raw coke. It's the first coke that I tasted in a long time that's been raw. And by raw, you mean like... Real cocaine. Um, real cocaine? It's not synthetic. It's not cut. It's real cocaine. I'm high as shit. That's Anna. You met her in the first episode of Narcotica, and for well over a year, she was probably my best fixer in North Philadelphia. She's in her fourth month drug-free right now, thanks to the recent introduction of a medication-assisted treatment program in Philadelphia's jail system. But at the time of this recording, at the end of the summer, I'd venture to say she was the city's foremost expert on the quality of retail-level cocaine in Philadelphia, which, unlike the shot she just took, she found almost universally disappointing. If anyone would have a bead on what was going on here, it would be Anna. How many people that you know just use coke? None. Nobody just uses coke? No. So even rock smokers, that, like around here, they're using mostly, yeah, using mostly using dope too. Yeah, not a lot of rock smokers. Uh, about maybe one person, maybe only smokes rocks. And you've never heard of anybody going out just from smoking a rock. Right? No, never, never. Nobody's no. That's ludicrous. Later, we were joined by my friend and colleague Tino Fuentes, who pioneered the use of fentanyl test strips in New York, and has been finding tainted cocaine there as well. 
he's come to the conclusion that siloed drug distribution markets may be giving the perception that fentanyl-contaminated cocaine is more widespread than it actually is. I've tested several bags of coke, and they've been po- uh, they've been positive. The one yesterday was not positive. Oh, so this is the thing that I had to change around in New York before. Is it from the same people, right? Because I was getting, like, from, like, let's say from three different guys here, they were all getting it from the same person. So what I did was, like, switched over. Test here, test there, test there. So, like, this one's testing positive. The other ones are not. You know? And I mean, you would be able to answer that. Is it the same? Is it the same people? I'm not sure if they're going to the same person. That's what I was gonna say. So I'm thinking, you know, if you're in a close enough area, like everybody dealing there is going to come to one person to get it from. So the reaction you're going to get is going to be the same. You're in different locations in the same area, but it's my coke. So if my coke already has fentanyl being cross contaminated, you're going to test them all. They're all going to be positive. <laughs> but if you test, if if I'm if you're getting this person selling my coke and then this person is selling somebody else and the other person is selling somebody else then you're going to get if you're going to get positive 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 then you have a problem but if you're going to get negative negative like i got and positive then we know this person here their stuff is contaminated as for how it was getting there in the first place well anyone who spent any time thinking about it seemed to come to the same conclusion here's toxicologist kevin shanks again what we know about where a lot of these substances and products are being made and mixed and cut, um, these places aren't known for their laboratory quality control and quality assurance. So a lot of it might be just basic cross-contamination if someone is prepping one product over here and another product over here. It could be in cross-contamination of products um, just based on the actual environment. Dennis Kushan in Ohio had come to the same conclusion. It wasn't nefarious drug dealers that were responsible for the problem. It was, well, messy ones. I think there's clear evidence of the sloppy dealer theory, as they call it, you know, which is, you know, you're using the same grinder to mix um, cocaine as you were heroin. By now, it was pretty clear why, in spite of the fact that I was getting clear positive tests for fentanyl in Philadelphia's powder cocaine, no one seemed to be dying from it. In most cases, they already had opioid tolerances. But that wasn't the only explanation. And this brings me back to that caveat I mentioned earlier in the program. The test strips that I use are developed by a Canadian company called BTNX, and their fentanyl strips are extremely sensitive. So sensitive, in fact, that research out of Johns Hopkins University found the strips were capable of detecting the presence of fentanyl in samples that even the most sophisticated laboratory technology had missed. In other words, we're talking very, very minuscule amounts of fentanyl powerful enough to turn up positive results using the most sensitive testing devices, but barely enough for most people to feel, let alone die from. But then, what to make of all the claims in the media, made by parents, mostly, that their children had died after ingesting cocaine that was contaminated with fentanyl? Towards the end of reporting this story, I was contacted by a woman named Kathy Wagner, who lives in Vancouver who wanted to talk about her son, Tristan, who had fatally overdosed in August 2017 on what she had believed to be crack cocaine that was contaminated with fentanyl. 
Like many of my Twitter followers, Wagner was familiar with my work testing street drugs for the presence of adulterants, and we began exchanging messages in which she shared tidbits of her son's life, like the year he spent in China studying Kung Fu. The music you hear in the background is from a video of Tristan that is posted on YouTube as he works through complex forms in a snow-laden forest near the temple he studied at. After one of these conversations, Wagner, who had given several interviews in Canadian newspapers about her son's death, contacted me to say that she was beginning to have second thoughts about the way he died. For instance, she asked me about some tinfoil she found among his possessions that appeared to be burned on the bottom, which I explained to her could be evidence that he was smoking heroin. And then she remembered a conversation she had with her son years before, in which he had said he had tried the drug. I asked her if we could speak on the phone, so she could explain in more depth how she had come to the conclusion that he died of fentanyl-laced cocaine, and now, in her own words, described herself as, quote, feeling like a fraud. I was always worried about um, fentanyl in cocaine, because cocaine's a drug of choice, and I know that there was... um, there was an, an article that I read in September 2016 where locally there was, um, you know, the police were putting out a report that fentanyl was found in powder cocaine. So that was certainly on my mind. But it was more a matter of me just thinking that, you know, I knew that, I know that cocaine is his drug of choice. So I figured that's what he would be using. You described yourself as feeling like a fraud. And I, I wonder um, if you if you could explain why you said that or what you meant by that exactly. I think because I've been pretty verbal that, you know, my son died from fentanyl laced cocaine. And I I think there's two, I mean, you know, I've, I've gone through previous interviews, you know, like I said, I I was interviewed on the national and I remember, um, Ian Hanneman saying, ask, pushing that be a a little bit. It's like, how do you know it was fentanyl laced? cocaine as opposed to something else. And at that point, um, you know, Tristan had only passed a couple of weeks earlier and I, I, you know, I, honestly, I think I just kind of shut him down. <laughs> I said, I just know that's what he would have used. I'm not even going there. I think what made me feel like a fraud is that when I kind of looked at it, um, and I still can't say I know for sure how, how he passed or what he was using, but I can say that I don't know um, that it felt better to me that he was using cocaine. It, it, I think I was creating my own stigma around it. And while at the same time, I'm trying to, to combat stigma, which is, it seemed a little bit fraudulent. Like many overdose fatalities attributed to fentanyl contaminated cocaine, investigators had come to the conclusion based solely on postmortem toxicology labs. As far as she knows, no drugs or paraphernalia was actually tested. That in spite of the fact that investigators had returned personal effects of his that contained what appeared to be a crack pipe, as well as the burned tinfoil and numerous empty baggies. Wagner is part of a support group of parents who have lost their children to overdoses, and she decided to reach out to them to see what their experiences had been with investigators. The answer shocked even me. I kind of sent out a message to other moms who believe their kids had passed some fentanyl-laced cocaine as opposed to any other combination of fentanyl to see kind of what, why they 
why they felt that as opposed to like, did they know that for a fact or did they just believe it? Because, and, um, out of, you know, there's probably half a dozen people that answered me. Only one had a clear answer that there was anything that resembled evidence. In the beginning of this story, I asked the rhetorical question, how much do we really know about fentanyl-laced or fentanyl-contaminated cocaine? The answer is, while there's no doubt in my mind that fentanyl is turning up in samples of street-level cocaine, I mean, I've seen it with my own eyes. Media has done more to convolute the issue than it has to bring light to it. And given the power of bad information to influence bad policy, I think the takeaway is that we all need to do a better job of asking the right questions, and more importantly, the right people. Narcotica is an independent production of Troy Farah, Zachary Siegel, and myself, Christopher Moraff. We can be found on Twitter at Narcocast, and we have a Patreon account, and that's patreon.com slash narcotica. You can also download us at iTunes and SoundCloud, or visit our webpage, www.narcocast.com. Thank you for listening, and thanks for the support.